Blog Talk Radio. Uh, also, I want to speak to a point from our friends in Washington. Uh, also, I want to speak to a point from our friends in Washington, uh, Senator McConnell. Some people are really fucking stupid. Did you ever notice that? How many really stupid people you run into during the day? Some people are really fucking stupid. All right, thanks everybody. The George Wilder Jr. Show is having some kind of a difficulty. We're going to straighten it out in a minute, but I'm just so glad we are able to make it on. Uh, <laughs> and this is a, a holiday for uh, for some people. And um, happy holiday of July. And we're having all kinds of problems. We'll be right back as we try to figure it out. <laughs> Oh, 
Yet more bad news this week for the uh, U.S. territory of Puerto Rico. As Donald Trump said during an interview with Fox News, that there is no way in hell he would ever consider granting the island nation statehood to become an official state of the U.S. And the reason is because Donald Trump is such a petty little snowflake that he doesn't want to even consider giving them statehood because there's people in the, on the island like San Juan Mayor uh, Carmen Cruz who aren't nice to him, who are mean to him. That is the actual reason that Donald Trump gave as to why he would not even consider giving Puerto Rico statehood, something that folks on the island have been trying to get for decades now. Because they have all the burdens of being a U.S. citizen. They have to pay taxes. They have to do all that stuff. They just don't get any of the benefits, right? They don't have a representative, or at least not a representative that has a vote. So nobody's out there looking out for their best interest, but they must adhere to all of the laws and regulations of the United States. So they have all the burdens and none of the benefits. And obviously, that's not fair. I mean, hell, that's what this country was founded on, right? No taxation without representation. And yet, we're doing it to the island of Puerto Rico. Um, Here's Donald Trump's exact quote. With the mayor of San Juan as bad as she is and as incompetent as she is, Puerto Rico shouldn't be talking about statehood until they get some people that really know what they're doing. Something they talk about. With people like that involved in Puerto Rico, I would be an absolute no. So Donald Trump, the snowflake president, actually wouldn't even consider it because Carmen Cruz has been very critical of the Trump administration, and rightfully so, because of their disgusting and deliberately heartless response to Hurricane Maria. I mean, for this man to go out there and continue to attack this woman a week after he denied the official death toll on the island from the hurricane is absolutely disgusting. Okay, Jeremy, let's take on this idea of corroborated incredible because I think people that don't understand how an intelligence product comes together and how it's used may think that this is a, a wave off and this may work for Trump, some of Trump's base. But, but, but let's do two things. One, after 9-11, there was a threat, there was a plot that was credible enough that everyone still takes their shoes off before they board a plane. Now credibility is on a spectrum, right? And in this plot was credible enough that we briefed our allies, we briefed the military special operations, we had all of the officials who are high enough up the chain of command to live and work in Washington, D.C., sit down in the situation room in March in the White House to figure out what to do about it. So to take on this sort of feeble defense that the White House seems to have landed on that, oh, it wasn't credible. And let me just ask you to, to explain this, too. A president who cares about national security and who cares about the safety of their troops, a normal president is made aware of any threat to troops on a battlefield. And this president was made aware enough of the threat posed by Iran and Soleimani to blow him up. So this is not a president shielded from threats to the troops on the battlefield. That's right, Nicole. So we collect intelligence in Afghanistan, for example, from detainees. We collect that information. And some of that information is used to form finished analysis, analytic products, 
that the intelligence community produces and gives to the president and other senior policymakers. But a presidential daily brief book, and you've seen some and I've seen many as well, they contain both those finished analytic pieces that explain, hey, we've got some information and here's our view of it, but they also sometimes provide some of the raw reporting, the raw collection. And presidents often are told, hey, we've got this tip or we've got this information from a human source or we've collected this information. We're still working on what it means and what our options are. But it's totally inconceivable and I think, frankly, an outright lie that the White House would have to wait until everything was buttoned up and verified to present it to the president. I think, Nicole, what's going on here is that either they told the president and he forgot, dismissed, or ignored it, and I think that's likely, or maybe they said to him, look, we're going to work on this, and he now, wants to, he now wants to disavow that he knew about it because he hasn't taken action against it, because I think, frankly, he has not wanted to take tough action against Russia all along. Jeremy, three former intelligence officials said there's no way this wasn't in the PDB. One former intelligence official said it would have been the first item in the PDB under a headline along the lines of threats to American soldiers in Afghanistan. Do you agree with that assessment? I do. And not only that, but this is exactly the kind of information that would go up, for example, through the Defense Intelligence Agency or through the J2, the Intel staff on the Joint Staff. This would get in the hands of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the Secretary of Defense, not to mention the CIA director and director of national intelligence. All of those people spent a lot of time with the president. It's inconceivable that for the last six months, not one of them said, hey, Mr. President, we have a direct threat to our troops. It is just outlandish, ridiculous. The, the, the fact that Kylie McEnany is standing there saying that, I think she's just insulting the intelligence of everybody who works in national security. Claire. Let's turn to the idea of oversight. Um, these former intelligence officials said we're asking the wrong question when we ask why wasn't the Gang of Eight briefed. This should have been briefed to the Armed Services Committee, should have been briefed to the Intel Committees. I mean, where, why, is Congress being cut out because the whole process is so broken? I mean, what are your questions? Maybe even worse than that, Nicole. Um, let's let's look at this. At one o'clock this afternoon, the president's press representative said he still hadn't been briefed. Now let that sink in. He's been playing golf. He's been tweeting stuff, but he hasn't said, "Hey, I need to get to the bottom of this. This is really important. Uh, our our enemy, Russia, is putting a price on the heads of our military." Now. Let's think about what's going on this afternoon in addition to that. They're doing a briefing at the White House for Republicans only. That is unheard of at moments like this. It's the United States of America, and one of the few places that we've managed to keep it united is support for our troops. This should be a bipartisan briefing of, if you don't want the whole Senate, then it should certainly be the Intelligence Committee with Gina Haspel answering questions. It should certainly be the Armed Services Committee with the Esper answering questions. It should certainly be the Foreign Relations Committee with Pompeo answering questions. And it should be Republicans and Democrats. But the notion that they are asking the Republicans to run up to the White House to get their political instructions, to learn how to lie for this president at a moment that Putin has a price on the heads of our military in Afghanistan. This is a scandal. I mean, they wanted to make a big deal about Benghazi. 
This makes Benghazi look like playing with toys. This is a big deal, and they are not treating it like it's a big deal. Claire, let me be um, as pointed as I can about this question. So Trump wins, and he likens the American intelligence community to Nazis. Um, he's there a few weeks. He asks Comey to see to it to let Flynn go. Comey refuses. He fires Comey, and he's spent the better part of three years smearing him. He uh, sets his sights on McCabe, smears and fires him a few days, I think, short of his pension vesting because his wife had the audacity to run for office. Uh, he moves on to Robert Mueller, who served George W. Bush after the attacks of 9-11 and continued and served Obama, attacked his 17 angry Democrats. Republicans say not one word. Not about the intelligence community being compared to Nazis. Not about Jim Comey appointed George W. Bush's deputy attorney general. Not about Robert Mueller, George W. Bush's FBI director. Not about the Mueller investigators who put away a lot of bad guys over the course of their careers. Republicans still, mom. Um, then Bill Taylor, uh, Ambassador Taylor, testifies during impeachment and said Ukrainians died while Donald Trump was diddling around with their military assistance that Congress approved. Republicans approved. They say nothing. Dead Ukrainians didn't move them. Now you got dead American soldiers and Republicans say nothing. What is the what? When do you cease to be a party if you say nothing? And what's next? Well, and don't forget that um, Trump stood up next to Putin in Helsinki and said, I believe him instead of my own intelligence community. I think he's telling the truth, Putin. Instead of the men and women, by the way, the majority of the people who serve in the intelligence committee are veterans. So here's what's happened here. We've had a, this is a repeat of Ukraine. There is someone in the intelligence community that is so upset about this, that knows what's going on, that has leaked this, because they are so worried about our troops and realize this president doesn't care. He cares more about a stupid tweet than he cares about the lives of Americans risking their lives for us in Afghanistan against the Taliban. So, I mean, this is really what's going on here. This is a repeat. Now, Vindman, you know, we saw what happened to Vindman when he did his patriotic duty. The question is, will they now ferret out who this patriot is? Will this patriot come forward? And will they do the same thing to him or her?
I want to talk to you about the Electoral College and why it matters. All right, I know this doesn't sound like the most sensational topic of the day, but stay with me because I promise you it's one of the most important. To explain why requires a very brief civics review. The President and Vice President of the United States are not chosen by a nationwide popular vote of the American people. Rather, they are chosen by 538 electors. This process is spelled out in the United States Constitution. Why didn't the founders just make it easy and let the presidential candidate with the most votes claim victory? Why did they create 
And why do we continue to need this electoral college? The answer is critical to understanding not only the electoral college, but also America. The founders had no intention of creating a pure majority rule democracy. They knew from careful study of history what most have forgotten today or never learned. Pure democracies do not work. They implode. Democracy has been colorfully described as two wolves and a lamb voting on what's for dinner. In a pure democracy, bare majorities can easily tyrannize the rest of a country. The founders wanted to avoid this at all costs. This is why we have three branches of government, executive, legislative, and judicial. It's why each state has two senators, no matter what its population, but also different numbers of representatives based entirely on population. It's why it takes a supermajority in Congress and three-quarters of the states to change the Constitution. And it's why we have the Electoral College. Here's how the Electoral College works. The presidential election happens in two phases. The first phase is purely democratic. We hold 51 popular elections every presidential election year, one in each state and one in D.C. On election day in 2012, you may have thought you were voting for Barack Obama or Mitt Romney, but you were really voting for a slate of presidential electors. In Rhode Island, for example, if you voted for Barack Obama, you voted for the state's four Democratic electors. If you voted for Mitt Romney, you were really voting for the state's four Republican electors. Part two of the election is held in December, and it is this December election among the state's 538 electors, not the November election, which officially determines the identity of the next president. At least 270 votes are needed to win. Why is this so important? Because the system encourages coalition building and national campaigning. In order to win, a candidate must have the support of many different types of voters from various parts of the country. Winning only the South or the Midwest is not good enough. You cannot win 270 electoral votes if only one part of the country is supporting you. But if winning were only about getting the most votes, a candidate might concentrate all of his efforts in the biggest cities or the biggest states. Why would that candidate care about what people in West Virginia or Iowa or Montana think? But, you might ask, isn't the election really only about the so-called swing states? Actually, no. If nothing else, safe and swing states are constantly changing. California voted safely Republican as recently as 1988. Texas used to vote Democrat. Neither New Hampshire nor Virginia used to be swing states. Most people think that George W. Bush won the 2000 election because of Florida. Well, sort of, but he really won the election because he managed to flip one state which the Democrats thought was safe, West Virginia. Its four electoral votes turned out to be decisive. No political party can ignore any state for too long without suffering the consequences. Every state, and therefore every voter in every state, is important. The Electoral College also makes it harder to steal elections. Votes must be stolen in the right state in order to change the outcome of the Electoral College. With so many swing states, this is hard to predict and hard to do. But without the Electoral College, any vote stolen in any precinct in the country could affect the national outcome, even if that vote was easily stolen in the bluest California precinct or the reddest Texas one. The Electoral College is an ingenious method of selecting a president for a great, diverse republic such as our own. 
It protects against the tyranny of the majority, encourages coalition building, and discourages voter fraud. Our founders were proud of it. We can be too. I'm Tara Ross for Prager University. Join Prager University. Click here to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Click here to sign up for free at PragerU.com for quizzes, contests, and prizes.